This is an ABC podcast. Hey there, Ange McCormack with you, filling in for Dave Marchese on the Hack podcast. In today's episode, more than 10,000 Victorians are displaced from flooding. There's more in New South Wales too. We'll bring you the latest from Shepparton and check in on floods and cleanups in Tassie. Plus, what place do casinos have in Australia? Today, Sydney's Star Casino has had its licence suspended after a bunch of scandals at the venue. There's been so many issues for casinos around the country, so we'll look at why and if this could be a turning point for our gambling culture. That's coming up later this episode. First, though, let's look at Australia's teaching crisis. Pack. I was spending two hours every afternoon and then most of Saturday and most of Sunday, at least eight hours on the weekend then planning as well. On Triple J. Long hours, working through your weekends, your holidays and your sick leave. That's just a normal part of the job for so many Australian teachers. If you know a teacher in your life, you'll know how passionate they are and why they chose their careers. But conditions are getting so bad and burnout is so high that tons of teachers are calling it quits. Plus, there's not enough uni students studying teaching to replace them, which means the problem could get even worse. Are you a teacher or training to be one? I know a lot of you listen to Hack, so what's work like for you right now? How could it be made better? Call me, 1300 0555 or text in 0439 757 In a moment, we'll put some of these issues to the Federal Education Minister. First, though, the ABC's national education reporter, Gabby Marchant, has this story. If I was a student now, I wouldn't think that that's a sustainable career, watching, you know, me be manic trying to get through my marking and, you know, visibly exhausted. If I was a teenager, I wouldn't want to submit myself to that. You might have heard Australia's teachers are not okay and they're basically leaving the profession in droves. Emma's a high school teacher in Yanjin, Brisbane, and she knows why. I will get to work at about 8 o'clock. I don't start getting paid until 8.55 when the first bell goes. I will usually work through at least one of my two breaks during the day. And then I will usually leave anywhere between 4pm and 5pm, depending on the day. And anything that I do after 3 o'clock, I don't get paid for either. And then I will do another hour or two of work in the evening. Emma says she's basically only paid for the hours she's actually at the front of the classroom teaching, but not the time she has to put into prepping those lessons in the first place. I have to mark all of this assessment. I have to create pieces of assessment. I have to do all of the emails. It's not a physical time to do all of that prep for over a thousand minutes of teaching. I get 210, less than a quarter of that time to actually plan what I'm supposed to do. It's unsustainable. A Grattan Institute report released today shows it would take a year for a high school teacher to adequately plan their lessons. And Emma says when COVID hit, it made existing issues even worse. Sick and exhausted teachers also felt guilty about taking time off. Because you still need to leave lesson plans, you still need to leave instructions, which is the last thing you want to do at six o'clock in the morning when you're ill. And you feel guilty, you feel guilty for knowing that you're the person who's going to mean that potentially classes get merged or your students don't learn the thing that you need them to learn. It's all led to a workforce crisis. 
federal government reckons by 2025 we're going to have 4,000 fewer teachers than we actually need as fewer people choose to become teachers and existing ones leave. Why wouldn't you go somewhere else to earn more money and, you know, only have to work from 9am to 5pm and not have to be contactable outside of hours and not have to give up your weekends to go watch students play football or, you know, go to after-school activities and those are the the thoughts that start to seep in. Callum's been there. He recently quit his full-time job as a high school science teacher in Perth to move to Canada and work casually as a relief teacher. And I've gone, well, I, I can't keep doing this at the moment and I just want to sort of do relief teaching at a bunch of different schools and see, try and get a feel for, okay, is it just the school I was in or are these issues you know, as common in other schools as I think they are. Callum says he had a real passion for education when he graduated, but by the time he resigned, he had basically quiet quit for his own sanity. So sort of day-to-day mentoring that a, a teacher does, I was finding that I was having to sort of, again, lower my expectations on that because otherwise I'd be spending too much time going over things again and not having a lesson to teach the next day which was quite obviously quite disheartening because those are the things that I thought were important. The new federal government says it knows things have to change to attract and keep teachers. It's working with the states and territories on a national plan to try and fix things, which it'll announce in December. Callum says cutting teachers' admin load should be one of the biggest priorities. That could be done developing up-to-date lesson resources that are really good quality um, because a lot of teachers are spending a lot of time developing resources and keeping current. And the other thing, I guess, is just more support staff in schools. I think in a lot of schools there's not enough school psychologists and educational assistants to help deal with all the various complexities and difficulties that kids and their families are facing. Emma agrees and says the government's also got to make it easier to get a permanent job. At the moment, heaps of teachers jump from contract to contract with no long-term job security. For some people, that's not an option. People who have families, it's not an option for them to be able to, you know, wonder if they're going to have a job in three weeks' time or wonder if they're going to have a job next year. For someone who has a mortgage, that's not necessarily something that is going to incentivise them to want to stay. Emma reckons, and Callum agrees, the saddest part is that with more support, they could really love their jobs. Any sane, reasonable teacher will say that, you know, it's absolutely worth it. It's worth the hard work. It's worth the long hours. It's worth all of those things if you're in the right frame of mind and you feel supported and you're not having yourself stretched beyond thinness. Hack on Triple J. Gabby Marchant with that story. So many people getting in touch on the Triple J text line. Someone says, I'm a pre-service teacher currently in my first placement and everyone is so burnt out. I don't want to be a teacher anymore. And I left a veterinary veterinary career to do teaching. Someone says, I'm a teacher. I'm overworked, never up to date with marking. I start at 7.30 and leave at quarter to six, but get paid only from 8.30 till four. There's heaps of issues to talk about with Jason Clare. He's the Federal Minister for Education. Minister, thanks so much for speaking with me. Um, We just, yeah, we, we just heard from super bright, passionate young teachers who are at breaking point. Why has it gotten so bad? It makes my heart sink when I hear those stories. Uh, You know, people like Emma and Callum, they they became teachers because they believe in the power of education. They know that the the teacher in the classroom is the most important person in that classroom. They can make all the difference in a child's life. And every teacher listening, every parent listening knows that. So when, when you hear 
young, in, inspired, hardworking people say that they want to give it away, you know, that tells me that there's something wrong here. It explains why we've got a crisis. Why, you know, when when teachers are are resigning, not retiring from teaching. Uh, then we've got a real problem here that we need to turn around fast. Do you, do you, do you have a message for, of hope for those teachers that are in that situation? You know, there's plenty on the text line who are saying, I'm considering quitting, I'm over it. Like, you know, is their lives, the teaching lives, going to get better in your government? Well, there's a, there's a bunch of things that we've got to do and no government can do it on their own. Education's one of those areas where the federal government's got to take a leadership role. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, but working with state governments and territory governments as well. You can start by talking up teaching and stop bagging teachers. That's what I've been doing from the get-go in my first couple of months as Education Minister. You know, the first thing I did when I got this job was go back to my old primary school and give my old teacher, Mrs Fry, a hug. Mm -hmm. uh, she was teaching there from 1978. She's still there. She's changed the lives of thousands and thousands of young people. I did that for a reason, to send a message that I get how important our teachers are and that we've got to do a bunch of different things here. Mm. We've got and to encourage more, more people to want to be teachers. We've got to help more people pass the university degree and get more people to complete the course. And then to the point that Emma and Callum were talking about, tackle this issue that is causing a lot of young people to leave the profession early. Now, something like 30 to 50% of young teachers leave teaching within the first five years. Part of the reason for that, Ange, is either the university course is not giving them all the preparation they need, all the practical experience early on, or they don't have the mentoring and induction support or the lesson plans. I think mm. that Callum talked about uh, in his comments in that yeah, interview. Yeah, and we'll get to that, um, the, the issue of lesson plans and preparation in a moment, but you raised an interesting point there about getting students to study teaching. That's one of the biggest issues. If we've got this teacher yeah. shortage, we need people studying it. How do you plan on making degrees more attractive for young people to, to, to take up? Because after hearing those stories, I can't imagine a lot of people are, are dying to get into it. Well, you're right. Uh, we've seen a drop of about 16% in the number of young people going into uni to study teaching in the last 10 years. More and more students at school fewer students opting to do teaching when, when they leave school and head to uni. One of the things that will be in the budget next week are bursaries or scholarships worth up to 40 grand to encourage our best and brightest and children from the... Re children's the wrong word, young people from the regions and Indigenous Australians to want to be teachers. Uh, that sort of financial support up front we think will make a big difference and help to encourage more of our best and brightest young people to become teachers mm. rather than doctors or lawyers or, God forbid, politicians. <laughs> uh, Minister, that's an interesting idea, that idea of incentives that you've just raised, $10,000 a year for those bright students that have high ATARs to get into those courses. But the Productivity Commission um, looked at how effective things like incentives for studying are, mm. and they basically found that, you know, those sort of financial incentives don't really work that well. People are still going to study what they want to study. So are you confident that's going to solve the there's, issue? There's different types of financial incentives, Ange. So a lot of the work I've seen says that if you uh, waive someone's hex fees, it doesn't really change the decision they make about what course they want to study because a lot of people will think, I pay that off over my working life. But if you provide a scholarship 
upfront financial support to help pay the bills, put food on the table, pay the rent, that can make a difference. And that's why we've opted for that upfront support. Will that will that program plug that gap of the thousands of teachers that are going to be in shortage by 2025? It's one of the things. It's not the only thing. It's not a panacea. The other thing that we've got to do is find ways to encourage more people mid-career to become a teacher, to switch from perhaps being a scientist or an engineer uh, to become a teacher as well. And that's often a really big challenge, particularly if you've got a mortgage or you know a big weekly rent bill to pay, you've got children at home. Taking two years out of your working life to do a master's degree at uni and become a teacher is a challenge. And so there are programs at the moment that are designed to help that. I think we need to do more of that to help more people mid-career switch from the work that they're doing now to becoming teachers in our classrooms. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack with Federal Education Minister Jason Clare. On the Triple J text line, someone says, I'm a first-year teacher. The amount of administration is a big factor for burnout. I wish we had more time to focus on the actual teaching. That's an interesting point, Minister, because today there was this report out from the Grattan Institute and it found that teachers have basically near impossible workloads for lesson planning and they're calling for governments to basically create lesson plans and resources for teachers instead. It'd save teachers time. It'd make learning better for kids because it'd be a more consistent approach. Is your government mm. going to look at this idea? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very important report. Uh, and I've said today that if, if we get it right, uh, then we can reduce the workload on teachers, give them more time to teach, and they'll become better teachers. So it's the sort of thing I want to talk to state and territory ministers about, as well as teachers, on this program and elsewhere about this report, how it would work, and the benefits that it could provide. And I'll, I'll talk to ministers about it in December. But just generally, Ange, this idea that teachers rock up at nine o'clock in the morning and knock off at three o'clock is rubbish. Any of us who know teachers or our parents know that that's not true, and this report proves it. It tells us that the typical teacher does six hours a week of classroom prep, of lesson planning. Lots of teachers do a hell of a lot more than that. And I think it was I think it was Emma in that story that you just took to air that talked about doing lesson prep all weekend long. Mm. Um, There's research from overseas that shows that Australian teachers work longer than teachers in other parts of the world, but spend less time in face-to-face teaching. About 40% of the time our teachers spend working is face-to-face with students. And so if you can do something about workload through providing curriculum materials, lesson plans, then that gives teachers an option. There'll be some teachers listening right now that will say, I don't need that. Um, I want to make up Mm. my own lessons and it's got to be about choice but you want high quality materials and providing the option for a school to use them if they want or adapt them for their own school. This this report says that at the moment only about 15% of schools have got that and if you you happen to go to a disadvantaged school like the the one that I went to when I was a little fella then it's even worse. Uh, Minister, well, there's so many more issues to unpack, but thank you so much for your time today and we look forward to seeing maybe some updates in the budget and the, um, the workforce to report back in December. No worries, Ange. Thanks for your interest. That's Minister for Education, Jason Clare there. On the Triple J text line, someone says, stop talking about attracting new people. You can't even keep the teachers you've got. The answer is in keeping the people you have. Hack. This is very serious. This will finish up being one of the most significant flood events we've had for quite some time. On Triple J. Earlier this year, Queensland and New South Wales copped a drenching with devastating floods, which are still impacting communities in a really big way. Now it's Tassie and Victoria's turn to experience 2022, the year of the floods. 
In Tassie over the past week, rivers broke their banks, flooding homes, roads and paddocks. The worst of it is hopefully over in Tassie, and as the water subsides, it's time for a big clean-up. If you've been affected by floods in Tasmania, I want to hear from you. Let me know how your clean-up's going and what lies ahead. 0439 75 7555. Our Tassie reporter April McLennan brings us this story. Yeah, just basically destroyed everything in its path, really. Yeah, I, was, I don't know, you've probably seen me spars up in the trees up there. Your spars up in the, in the tree. tree? Yeah, if you can have a look up, you sort of see that up there, there's a little thing like in the trees there. That's my spar that was attached to the backyard. And that's how, that's that's just the force of that water coming. As soon as it broke that bank, 10 minutes, we had to climb the, actually get a ladder, climb the back fence to get out, jump that, jump the neighbour's fence, then head up to the neighbours out the back here. But they end up getting flooded as well, so they, it wasn't real good for them either. Like first time in 185 years they've been flooded. That's Clinton Hobby. He lives along the riverbank at Deloraine in northern Tassie. Last week, the township was hit by record-breaking floods after heavy rainfall. In fact, there were evacuations across 17 local government areas in the north of the state. The water was up to Clinton's waist as he helped his family to higher ground. He told me that at one point he was scared for their lives. And while they're all okay, the damage inside the house is really bad. It's a muddy, sopping mess. He's cleaned up as best he can, but everything's pretty drenched. All come through here, up past the skirting boards there. And as if there was bits of it still drying out, we've just got mats and everything. We've got got nowhere to put the (laughs) dog's bar in here because we've got no no more fences. Yeah, it's just come through through the bedrooms here. So that's you squishing the water out of the carpet? Yeah, yep. As the floodwaters subside and communities begin returning to their homes, the damage bill is continuing to rise. On the other side of the river, the local footy club also went under. We received about 700 mils up the wall. That included going over the top of tables, chairs, photos on the wall, memorabilia, all the way through to our bar. That's Lockie Dornoff. He's the captain of the Deloraine Roos Footy Club and a local dairy farmer. Lockie says it's not the first time the club rooms have flooded. 2016 when we had those floods, to then have to rebuild after that, to then a stage where we are at today where we're looking at the same uh, situation but potentially worse. The flood levee banks uh, rose in 2016 to 3.6 metres and this year they rose to 4.6. The floods of 2016 are a not-so-distant memory for many Tasmanians. They claimed the lives of three people and caused around $200 million of damage to property and infrastructure. Luckily, no one died in these floods. But Lockie said it still had a huge impact on the community. There are people around the community that have had their businesses lost that certainly won't be able to recover. I know farmers out from the Meander area that have lost full barns, um, some dairies and a number of cattle as well, which is probably the most upsetting as well. While the cleanup continues and the full financial impact of these floods is yet to be tallied, the state's Premier, Jeremy Rockcliffe, says there will be government support, not just for the families unable to return to their homes, but for businesses to help them get back on their feet. We are here to support you. Uh, we are with you and uh, we will stand by you as you uh, lean into your uh, recovery over the course of the next uh, days, uh, weeks uh, and months. For Clinton and his family, they've sought refuge in a room at the local pub, but they're struggling to find a place to rent, something that's a tad tricky in a housing crisis. 
He's seriously thinking about packing up what little possessions they have left and leaving the state. I can't make it a home again. It's not never going to be a home again because I can't risk building anything here and just getting it washed away in the blink of an eye again. It's not only me. There's hundreds of families around that have copped the same thing and, again, what the future holds for them. Do they, do they pack up and leave? Hack on Triple J. April McLennan there reporting from Launceston in Tasmania. Let's go to regional Victoria now. More than 10,000 Victorians have been displaced by the floods. There's hundreds of road closures, thousands of homes without power. The town of Shepparton on Yorta country in Victoria has been hit. The Goulburn River peaked at just over 12 metres. And parts of the town are underwater today. Locals are paddling out in kayaks to check out their homes. ABC Goulburn Murray reporter Rosa Ritchie is in Shepparton now. Rosa, what are you seeing? How's Shepparton looking today? Well, it varies greatly, and depending on where you are in town. So some streets were so lucky. Some streets are completely dry, and they always knew that they were going to be safe from the floodwaters, and others, the houses have been flooded and properties have been, yeah, really, really inundated has been thrown around so much as the word lately. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's rushed in and... and whole households have been destroyed, unfortunately. Yeah, do we know how many homes have been affected, like the scale of the damage? Well, they're still trying to assess that. We know it's about 4,500, and that's not as bad as it could have been. So the the floodwaters, as you mentioned earlier, didn't get as high as, as authorities were concerned they would. Um, it means about 450 houses didn't get impacted that otherwise might have. So that's a bit of a silver lining, um, mm. but, you know, a, a small one for the other people who are dealing with the worst situation. Absolutely. And there was a warning for locals about flooding last week. Did did people in Shepparton feel prepared for the extent of the flooding, though, or was this still come as a bit of a shock? It's a huge shock. I think, I think no matter um, the severity of the warnings, it's hard to comprehend until it's happening to you. And it, it creeps in slowly a flood, or this one did at least. Um, it's not, it wasn't like a flash flood. We did have a bit of warning. We had a few days to prepare and sandbagging started sort of mid last week, but it wasn't until uh, probably Thursday or Friday night that the efforts really ramped up and, and, there, and there was enough sandbags and, and we got that pace. And on Saturday, there was so much sandbagging going on mm-hmm. and it was, become so efficient but before that um i think yeah hindsight is a wonderful thing but i'm sure a lot of people are feeling like maybe they wish they had a few more sandbags around their place yeah absolutely and and hopefully you know the worst of the rain is over but it means you know the recovery is only just starting i saw the front page of the local paper in shepparton today says you know we will get through this together um what is the sense of community like in shepparton in the face of a really big cleanup that's ahead it's so strong and it's not just Shepparton. Shepparton includes surrounding towns. We've got Murchison, we've got Marupna. And even though at the moment floodwaters are separating those communities, they're all really closely linked and they're all really proud to live here and to help one another. So that has been, I suppose, something beautiful to witness and to be part of. I've been, you know, sandbagging late at night <laughs> as well. And, and, it, and yeah, that camaraderie is pretty special and, and you... You don't encounter it except in the worst situations. Mm, all hands on deck vibe out in Shepparton today. Um, Rosa, thanks so much for the update and stay dry out there and good luck for the recovery. I know it'll be a really big thing for your community over the next couple of months. So thank you. Thank you.
No worries. That's Rosa Ritchie there from the ABC Goulburn Murray Bureau reporting live from the floods in Shepparton. And if you're in a flood-affected area in Victoria, Tassie or New South Wales, switch to your local ABC radio station for the latest emergency updates. Hack. The Nick has today resolved to firstly impose a fine of $100 million on the star and secondly to suspend the star's casino licence. On Triple Jack. Yeah, onto something a bit different. Money laundering, organised crime, large-scale fraud and foreign interference. Those are just a few of the allegations heard in an inquiry into Sydney's Star Casino. Today, Star got its wake-up call. It's being fined a record $100 million and its licence is being suspended. This is happening, of course, after Crown Casino had its own dramas and its licence revoked. It means that Sydney, Australia's glitzy, gambling-loving city, won't have any casinos open to the public anymore. After all the controversies with casinos lately, do you think they have a place in our major cities or do they just need a really big clean-up? Text me 0439 75 7555. The report into the casino came after an investigation by the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and 60 Minutes. Nick McKenzie is an award-winning journalist behind that investigation and he's on the line now. Nick, thanks so much for chatting with me. Can you take us back to a bit to your investigation that sparked this inquiry? How did this all come about? Yeah, good to be here. Listen, effectively it came out because people who worked within Star and the Crown, so insiders, uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, a whole range of, of different stakeholders with different sort of views of how the casinos operated from the inside raised one persistent concern, and that was that Star and the assistance and Crown was the same, was facilitating organised crime activity, activity money laundering, uh, in some cases money laundering by people like sex traffickers and drug traffickers, because they these casinos valued money passing over the table and gambling dollars rather than good governance. So steps to ensure that crooks couldn't use the casino to, to money launder. So we, we exposed those concerns. We exposed evidence which backed up those concerns. And as a result, there was commissions of inquiry all over the country, including the investigations into Star, which have led to today's outcome. You mentioned in your intro, Sydney won't have casinos. That's not quite true. And what's happened today with Star is it's been fined a, a huge amount, $100 million. It's had its licence suspended, but it can still operate. That's going to operate under a, a sort of a, a, a manager uh, but ultimately it can keep operating. And I think that's at the heart of this story. Sure. Is, you know, these casinos have been smashed, but they're still allowed to keep their licences. Yeah, and what does that say about, um, I, I guess, the um, the penalty here for, for what, what's been going on? You just explained, you know, a litany of issues and, and yet they're still going to be allowed to be open at least for a certain period of time, right? Well, it's, it shows that casinos are too big to fail. And what I mean by that is they're too powerful, they employ too many people, they raise too much money for state governments, that no one's got the courage to actually say, hang on, you've been helping organise crime operate, you shouldn't have a licence, you've lost your social standing, you've lost that trust the community places in a casino to do what it does. Uh, No one has the courage to actually make that, that big call. So in the case of both Crown and Star, yes, they've been absolutely flogged in the public square, their management have been sacked, the boards have been cleaned out, the CEOs have lost their jobs and lots has been exposed and all that's welcome. But the ultimate penalty, which is the loss of a casino licence, that hasn't happened. Uh, And then at the end of the day, what does that say? It says uh, ultimately casinos are really powerful corporate players in Australia and there's no agency or government prepared to actually 
to land that final killer blow. Mm. And you, you say that casinos have been flogged in the public square. Do you think it, they really have in Sydney in that, you know, when um, Star and Crown become fully operational again as they were before, do you, do you think there will be um, some noisy birds in the background there, um, that there'll be as much of a the same culture of gambling in places like Sydney or has the culture of gambling changed in light of these, you know, horrific findings coming out of these places? Listen, there's no doubt that Star and Crown are now operating in a cleaner fashion. What does that mean? It means that if you're a a drug trafficker and you've got a million bucks, you want to money launder through the casino, it's going to be harder to do that. But that said, you know, the casino business is a bit like the arms business, the tobacco business. At its core, it's it's, uh, often a, a pretty dirty product. Uh, I don't think there's many sort of public health experts who say that gambling is a good thing for people, especially when you think of pokies addiction. The casino model is what it is. And while casinos operate, they're going to, at least in some people's eyes, be um, affecting society in in an adverse way. And that leads to a deeper question, do we want casinos? And the answer to that seems to be yes. Uh, So I guess the only thing to do is to make sure that they're as clean as possible, which is what these commissions of inquiry have tried to do. Yeah, and, and just quickly, Nick, we don't have much time till the news, but Star's being fined $100 million. That's a lot more than the $80 million that Crown Casino was fined. Does that suggest that what went on at Star was worse than Crown or is this just a different penalty we're seeing here? Uh, listen, it's, it's, it's big bucks for both companies. Uh, it tells us their, their operations were abhorrent. You know, what, what they were doing to enable money launderers to deal with criminals was just appalling. But at the end of the day these are sorts of uh, amounts of money that can still be absorbed pretty easily in a large company's bottom line. And Mm. as as long as they're keeping their licence, they'll be good to go into the future. And so shareholders know that. Yeah, as someone on the text line says, $100 is probably a drop in the ocean to them. Um, Nick McKenzie, thanks so much for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Hack on Triple J. That was Nick McKenzie there, investigative journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of The Hack Podcast. We'll be back again with you tomorrow. Hack on Triple J.